Uh, it's good to have you here today. We have uh, 70 plus men that are, that are at a weekend catalyst retreat right now. Uh, Dana's leading them as he has uh, for years now. Um, Dana has lost his voice as of the very first night and he's giving four talks. And I hear his Bronx, his Bronx accent through the lost voice is remarkable to hear. But um, what I've also heard is that God's been working as powerfully, if not more so than ever before in it. So many of you have been praying for them. Thank you for the prayers. They're not done yet. And I'm sure God's not done yet either. So if you would pray for them as uh, the, they come to a close later this afternoon around four. But I'm glad to have you guys here today. We're going to start this series about the book of Ephesians. And I know that I've been impacted by it for a long, long time. It has stirred my thoughts and my emotions and, and changed my actions in many ways. But until I began to really dig into what a lot of others have said about it, I didn't realize how deeply it affected others as well. Uh, I've sent emails to those of you on our email list. I, I quoted some of the people that are renowned scholars about what they say about this book of Ephesians. And one said this. He said, pound for pound, Ephesians may well be the most influential document ever written. Now, I'm sure some would argue with that, but, but that's, that's the level of impact it's had. And so I've been excited for us to spend just a short six weeks on it. We could spend, honestly, you could spend six years and not be done with it, but just a short six weeks on it. I want to give you some background about it. This book was written around 60 A.D., so it was less than 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, which means that there were a number of people that actually saw him after the resurrection. A number of people that ate with him, that touched him, that heard him speak after the resurrection. And then during these nearly three decades, there had been this uh, relentless expansion of this good news of Jesus. Very quickly throughout all of Jerusalem, they knew very quickly about the, this claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. It spread quickly throughout the, the local region of Judea, after some time, it began to, to spread into Samaria to the north. And, and now, the, the last decade, from the late 40s until 60 AD, it was spreading throughout the Roman Empire. And during this entire time, the entire nearly 30 years, there was intense persecution. Every place this good news of Jesus went, after a few people began to follow and began to influence others to follow, there was intense persecution. And as some of you would know, the, in the early days of this, the most intense of those who was bringing about persecution was a guy named Saul. He was responsible for the death of countless followers of Jesus. But somewhere along the line, in those opening years, Jesus appeared to him with skin on. The resurrected Jesus appeared to him, and, and Saul uh, placed his whole life under the leadership of Jesus. And his name was changed to Paul. He was a, truly, he was a different man. And he's the man that ended up writing this book of Ephesians. In fact, he's written, he wrote 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. So this profound writer. So right now as he's writing this, I spoke of him being the great persecutor. He's actually writing from prison in Rome. And the best timetable scholars can put together, he was, he'd be finally released from this prison time in Rome for a short period of time, be arrested again, imprisoned again, and then be executed by the Roman government. And, and so this is the guy that wrote it. He was writing, it says, he was writing to the people at this town of Ephesus, and, and I'll expand a little more about how he was actually writing to a lot more than that. But, but this town of Ephesus, was, it was a major city in the Roman Empire. Do you know where Turkey is today? The country of Turkey on the Mediterranean? If you take the southwestern part of Turkey, about the size of Arizona, it was called Asia Minor. 
And so um, Ephesus was in this region of, of Asia Minor. And Paul had actually been to Ephesus a few years before he wrote them and before he wrote the entire region of Asia, Asia Minor. He had been there. He spent over two years there. You can read about it in Acts 19 and 20. And there was um, this remarkable work that God chose to do there. At one point, it says that while Paul was telling people about the good news of Jesus, God began to pour such healing power through Paul that if someone merely had a handkerchief or a shawl or a cloth touch Paul, they could actually take that and touch a a dying person and they'd be healed by the power of God. And so clearly God was saying, I'm going to explode this message in Ephesus. It wasn't to draw attention to Paul at all. It was to draw attention to the message Paul had. And so with that happening, you can imagine how many people came to believe this message has to be true. Who else could do something like what we're watching if it's not God? And so there were countless people who were giving their lives to follow Jesus, and God was deeply remaking and reordering their lives. So much so, it began to, to unravel the religion and the economy of Ephesus. The religion of Ephesus was worshiping this god called Artemis. They had built this spectacular temple to Artemis, and we would know it as one of the seven wonders of the world. It was spectacular. So people came from all over the world to see this temple. And when they came to Ephesus, you know, they spent money, didn't they? You know, lodging and food, etc., etc., etc. And then they would buy idols to Artemis as well, or these shrines as well. So there's this huge industry of making idols and shrines. It was the economy. It drove the engine of economy there in Ephesus. And so now there were so many people abandoning Artemis and following Jesus that, that the religious base of those worshiping Artemis was beginning to fray and unravel. And the economy was as well. And there was this massive outpouring of persecution uh, upon the Christians in that time. And so, so that, that, was, that was what was going on in, in Ephesus. But this letter, as it unfolds, Paul is writing as though he's writing to people who don't know him. And clearly the ones in Ephesus knew him. But if you look at what happened in Acts 19 and 20, Paul's impact wasn't just on Ephesus, although that's the place he stayed. It was upon all of Asia Minor, a, a geography about the size of Arizona. It was, he impacted the whole area with the message of Jesus. And so most scholars believe he actually was writing this book to the entire area of Asia Minor. And rather than make it this focal point about, hey, I know you, I love you, he was speaking to this broader audience of the entirety of Asia Minor. And so this became known as a a circular book or a circular letter in that it circled from town to town to town, city to city to city, to be read and reread again and again and again. And, And this book of Ephesus is as revolutionary now as it was in AD 60. I mean, profoundly revolutionary now. I want to read the first couple of verses. I won't elaborate upon them because I'm going to focus on on five key verses that follow this. But let me read the opening verses for you. It says, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So he's saying, I'm writing to the faithful followers of Christ Jesus. He's writing to all of those that have placed their faith in Jesus. And so if, if you would hear this in one of two ways, if you are one who's already trusted Jesus, then he's writing directly to you. If you're one who is not yet, and I'm sure there, there'd be many in this room, then, then hear it as one who 
could be impacted and changed as this book talks about being impacted and changed. Hear it in that light because you would have this, you'll have this time, this window of today and this six weeks window to hear what God would say to all of those who trust Jesus and you could become one of those. And so hear it in that context. So I want to focus in the rest of our time on verses three through seven. Uh, Every verse is packed and so I'll challenge you to read the rest of it deeply throughout the week, but I'm going to focus on verses three through seven. Verse three says this, all praise to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. He says we're, we're united with Christ. In the, the literal Greek in which this was first written, said we are in Christ. We are found in Christ. Now, if you've read scripture and been in church for some time, you may, you may be well aware that the flip of that is true, that Christ lives in you. If you follow Jesus, Christ lives in you. Because Paul writes about that five times. In his 13 books, there are five times he says, you got to understand, like Christ, once you trust him, he's begun to live in you. He wrote that five times. But he wrote 164 times that someone who's trusted Jesus now, now is in Christ. Not only is he in them, 164 times he said, you're in Christ. And more than any other book, 36 times he says that in this book to the Ephesians, 36 times. And in my copy of it, my printing, the book is only four pages, which means it averages like nine times a page. So you're, you're in Christ. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it says that Christianity is a highly relational faith. It is not at the core about rules and regulations and laws. It's not at the core. It's, not, it's about relationship with the living God. It's about this, this intimate, growing, transforming relationship, which does change us. It, it, it ties into we are in Christ. We're not in the directions he gave. We're not in the laws he gave. We're actually in him. Actually, it's so it's highly relational. I'll give you an analogy that may help you. Marie and I live in the Bay Area. That's the, that's the environment in which she and I live. A lot of you live in the Bay Area. Some of you not. A lot of you live in the Bay Area. And you too, you're influenced by this environment that you're in. We're influenced by the weather, by the heat, by the humidity, by the rain, by the hurricanes. We're, we're influenced because we live in the Bay Area. We're influenced by the... Uh, highway repairs, which seem eternal, but they will end when Jesus comes back. They'll go on until then, but, but we're, the highway construction, it impacts us because we live in the Bay Area, in the environment of the Bay Area. We're influenced by the, the relative affluence of the Bay Area compared to the rest of the world and the rest of human history. We're influenced by, some of us, by property taxes and on and on and on. We live in the Bay Area. It's the environment we live. We're affected by the environment. And very specifically, if you're a follower of Jesus, to live in Christ means that he is, he is our primary environment. I mean, primary even to living in the Bay Area. He is, he is more real. He's more powerful. He's more lasting as the environment in which we live in the Bay Area is. Which means his intent is that I would become increasingly aware that I'm living in him. He is the key environment in which I live, and I'd be influenced by that environment, which is one of righteousness and love 
grace, power, purpose, the list could go on and on and on. When Paul writes about you, a follower of Jesus, you are in Christ, he's saying, this is, this is the primary environment which you now live. This is massive privilege. Before that, before that, you lived on this planet in the geography, and that's the best you had. But once you trusted Christ, now there's this new environment that, that trumps the other one. There's this new greater environment. You now live in Christ. So I have a question that I would ask you, and I've been asking myself. If, if you're a follower of Christ, is he the primary environment that is influencing your life most right now? If you are indeed, if you are in Christ, is he the primary influential environment of your life Or do you find, and maybe it's for a day or a season or just perpetually, do you find that because you live in the Bay Area or you live in Houston or you live in Seattle or you live in the United States, that that's the primary influence of your life? And and when I realize that the geographical environment is influencing me more, I realize what, what I'm missing out on. There's this beautiful, powerful like life-giving influence of Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. I pick up with verse 4. And verses 4 through 7 are some of the most stunning and uplifting words ever written. It begins by this. It says in verse 4, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace that he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Begins by saying, before the world began, he loved us and chose us to be in Christ. It says he planned in advance that we would become adopted into his family. And, and it raises this question I need to touch on just very, very briefly. It raises the question about does God really like predetermine whether someone will have faith in Jesus or not? Is God actually the driving force that when he made you, has he already predetermined? And you'll either trust Christ or you won't already decided. And there, there are two schools of thought on that, and, and I have to be very respectful of both of them. One school of thought is that he did. He just predetermined, and, and you'll trust Christ just because he determined that. And in, in deep respect, that's not what we believe at the harbor. Many people do. Many brilliant, faithful people do. We don't believe that here. We understand in Scripture, and Paul writes about it in Ephesians, that God chooses those who choose Jesus. The scripture says that again and again and again. Like the only ones that, that have a relationship with God, the only ones that make heaven, they're, they're the ones that choose Jesus. So God chooses those that choose Jesus. Then the question is, then did he make them or did, was it free will? And here we, we deeply believe it's free will. If, you've follow, if you follow Jesus, you, you chose you weren't forced into it. You weren't hardwired. If you haven't chosen him yet, it's on you. It's not on God. If you get to the end of your days, it's, it's not on God. It's on you. It's what we believe. And so I, I spent an entire message explaining why we believe this biblically at the harbor. And so if you have questions around it, if you would uh, text the word questions to the number 63566. 
Text the word questions to 63566. So to touch on that, to, to get that uh, laid out at the beginning. So he says, before, even before he made the world, he loved you. So how long has he loved you? Well, scientists today think that the world is, the universe is about 14 billion years old. And you may have a different number, a different figure, but I bet it's a long, long time, whatever your number is. And what scientists think 100 years from now might be different, but I'll go with what they say today. They think he made the world 14 billion years ago, which says he has been loving you for 14 billion years. This sustained, unwavering love for you for 14 billion years. It's a love beyond comprehension. He began to love you 14 billion years before he made the universe, and then you've been born somewhere along the way with it. And then it says, even before he made the world, he planned to make you holy and without fault, which means he planned to forgive you. 14 billion years ago, fellow Christ follower, he decided that in advance he would forgive you. He would make you holy and without fault, which means before he created the universe, he understood that, that I would sin and you would sin and we would need a savior. And he predetermined, like for 14 billion years, he planned that Jesus will come, the son of God will come and give his life for our sins. And 14 billion years, for, for that long, he planned to forgive you, make you holy and without fault at a high, high price. At verse seven, it says, he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son. And then even before he made the world, he planned to adopt you into the family of the God of the universe, which means if you are now a follower of Jesus, or this would be true if you become a follower one day, it means men, it means you're a much-loved son of the God of the universe. (laughs) You're the much-loved son of the God of the universe. Women, you're the much-loved daughter of of the God of the universe. I, I don't care how how good or bad your dad was or is, now you have the the perfect, perfect, perfect father. He's adopted you and adopted me because we chose faith into his family. And then here's the best part. In in verse 5, it says that, that, that he's loved us, he's forgiven us, he's adopted us because he wanted to, and it gave him great pleasure. This verse 5, it says, this is what he wanted to do. It's given him this, this great pleasure. It's not because he had to. It's because he passionately wanted to. And it makes such a difference when we began to be gripped by that. I'll give you an illustration. My mother and father saved a long time to help pay for my part of my college education, my brother's college education. And we were very grateful for it. And, and we could tell every time my dad would write a check at the beginning of a semester, you could tell he, he was thrilled to do it, which I'd never understood as a, a young man at the time. I do now. But, but he, it's like he was the best check he ever wrote. And then we found out after both of my parents had died, my brother and I were going through a bunch of financial records that had been left behind in a, in a bank deposit box in some place. And, and we found all these records, and they were always, they had very modest means, and we always lived in very inexpensive rental homes my entire life, and they didn't have much, but we found this record before we were born. They began to save for college for us. And the entire run, so for me, it was like it was over 18 years. 
And, and the entire time, it wasn't because they had to. They never once had this sense. We're parents, and that's what parents should do. So we'll just, yeah, we'll just gut it out, and, and we'll suffer, and you thank God when it's over. It, it was never that. It, it was because they, they wanted to. It gave them great pleasure, and it changed my whole perspective. My appreciation of them, my value of them, my gratitude of them has all changed. So it says here in verse 5, this is really important, this 14 billion years of love and anticipated forgiveness and anticipated adoption, this is what God wanted to do for you, and it gives him great pleasure. So I have another question for you. Have you ever felt that when it comes to you, that he only forgave you? or if you've not yet trusted Jesus, but you do someday, that he would only forgive you because he has to. He set the rules out, and he had to make them clean. So you know, Jesus died, Jesus rose, and anyone that trusts him gets in. And, and, uh, but did he do that with a sense of, I wish I could tighten it up a little bit? You know, anyone that trusts Jesus and you know, does these things, or anyone that trusts Jesus and didn't do these things? And, because I, there are times I look at my life and I think, ugh. <laughs> I, I, I think about my life, and I think he has to hold his nose. <laughs> when he forgave me, I think it, sometimes I think it had to be like this. But I go back to this verse 5, and it says, this is what he, forgiving me, adopting is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Do you find yourself sometimes thinking, he had to, I fit the criteria, fit the rules, but I just kind of got in, a bunch of people he was excited about, but not me? If that's what you've thought, and there are times that I do, you and I are so wrong. This is the passion of the heart of God. This is the very passion of the heart of God. So if you're a follower of Jesus now, think about your life. So for 14 billion years, he's loved you, and he anticipated forgiving you and adopting you. Because he passionately wanted to... 14 billion years, that is, friends, that is over 5 trillion days. His heart and mind have been on you. So can you imagine how he felt about your life? Think about your life after 14 billion years when the day came that he created you in your mother's womb. Can you imagine how he felt after 14 billion years and he created you? There's a pretty good clue about that because you can look at Genesis 1 when he was creating everything. And it creates the earth and the sky and sun and moon and plants and animals. And you go through five days and and after each of the first five days, God said it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. But the sixth day he makes Adam and Eve and he doesn't say it was good. He says it was very good. So I'm convinced that after 14 billion years of waiting, and that's, that's just reality, that happened. The day he created you in your mother's womb, I deeply believe he said, this is very good. This is very good. How do you think he felt the day you were born? He had known all about who you would be from eternity past, but now the world got to see you. How do you think you felt when your mother first saw you, or your father first saw you, or the world saw you? How do you think you felt that day? Do you think it was this exuberance and celebration? How did he feel the day that you trusted your life to Jesus? 
How did he feel on that day? How did he feel the day you proclaimed to the whole world you belong to Jesus in baptism? This is about you, friends. How did the God of the universe feel about you? Some big clues in Scripture. Jesus was spending another day with some people that were really bad sinners. And the religious leaders who thought they were better than the rest were criticizing Jesus. And so he he just answers with three stories in Luke 15. He talks about this shepherd that has 100 sheep and he loses one of them. But the one matters like so much that there's this great search to find the lost sheep and the lost sheep is found. And then there's this huge party this, this one sheep is not lost, it's not dead, didn't get killed by a wild animal, it's not going to starve someplace, it's been found, and there's this huge party. And just in case they didn't get that, he tells a second story about a woman who has 10 valuable coins, and she loses one of the 10. And there's this massive search that she goes through, and she finally founds the, finds the lost coin, and, and she is so thrilled that it's been found, she throws this huge party for her friends. For all I know, the party costs more than the coin cost, but she was... She was so thrilled that the coin was found. And then just in case I didn't get it with two stories, he tells a story of a father with two sons. And one of the sons is lost. And then the story ends with this son finding his way back home. And there's this massive party thrown by the father. And Jesus said, this is what happens. This is what happens when, when every single person comes to faith in me. There's this exuberant celebration. Why? Because this is what God, from 14 billion years past, this is what he wanted to do. And he gives him great pleasure. It gives him great pleasure. This is what he wanted to do. I love the passage that Sarah read from Zephaniah in chapter 3, verse 17. And as she well said, this was written to the nation of Israel. And so you always have to be careful what you apply to us Because this was written to Israel, but it's very clear that the application of the verse she read, chapter 3, verse 17, applies to us as well. Hear it one more time. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. And as the translation that Sarah read was accurately stating, it it suggests shouting joyful songs. Not like like just a calm, you know, controlled voice. This is the God of the universe shouting. Not over the multitude of Christ, but shouting over you. (laughs) Shouting over you. The God of the universe. I think of that father with two sons. When the lost son found his way home, this wealthy, highly respected father sees his son coming down the lane. And he leaps off the porch because he's been watching and waiting. He leaps off the porch, like all dignity thrown aside. No worry about what people are going to think less of me as this wealthy man because I'm, I'm running down the road to my son. Jesus The Father, the Spirit, not just singing joyful songs, shouting joyful songs over you. So I have a question for you. Do you understand that this is not abstract theology? This is very personal. Do you know it's about you? 
Again, I'm not talking to all of you. Do you know it's about you? And can you bask for a moment in how much God loves you? Could you bask for a moment now in how much God loves you? His love for you is beyond, beyond measure. So God intends to remake us with this. With everything he's written in Scripture, he intends to remake us. He, he intends to, to, to bring about a revolution of us as persons. He wants to change everything about us by some truth such as this. He wants to change the way you think. He wants to change the way you feel. He wants to change the things you do. Let me put some different words. He wants to change your thoughts and your emotions and your actions, which is the sum of all that you are. Or maybe this helps. He wants to change your head and your heart and your hands. He wants to change the entirety of you as a being about this truth, around this truth. And so years back, I, I began to see three questions captured that. If you've been around, you know the three questions. So I want to ask you the questions and you to ponder the answers. The first is what we've just read. The truth we've just read, it's about you. It's not abstract, it's about you. What does God want you to know? What is the truth he wants you to know from this? And there are many words that you might put around it, but certainly he wants you to know his great love for you. It's beyond comprehension love for you. His great forgiveness for you that costs so much. That he's adopted you. He wants, he wants you to know this is true. These are the facts of your life. This is reality. So based upon that fact, those facts, the second question comes, what does he want you to feel based upon those truths? In other words, if, if you believe to the core of your being those verses applied to you, if you threw out all the lies that filtered through your head. If you fully believe this, how would you feel? What would your emotions be? If you knew, like if you knew the, this love of God, this is what he delights in, and the forgiveness is complete because he says you're holy and without fault in his eyes. If you knew that, if you knew you were his child, what would you feel? And there are different words you could put. Certainly, I would put you would feel loved, wouldn't you? Like genuinely loved? You'd feel treasured? And to pay that price, you'd feel treasured? To, to 14 billion years to focus, you'd feel treasured? You'd feel pure? If you really believed, holy and without fault, because he's covered your sins, you'd feel pure? You'd feel secure, wouldn't you? Like the God of the universe is your dad. He's the perfect dad. You'd feel secure? Probably a number of other emotions you would feel as well. Which finally leads to the final question, so what does God want you to do? Based upon these truths and these short verses, what does he want you to do? What does he want you to do? If you're a follower of Jesus, I would say praise. In fact, it's what Paul writes after he talks about God's great pleasure. The very next thing he says is now praise God. I would say praise, worship God would be what we would do. Express thanks to God. Trust him. Probably pursue a radical ab- abandonment to follow him, probably, to get this. Those are things he would want us to do. If, if you're not a follower of Jesus, what would he want you to do? First, he wants you to be gripped by all of this could be true of you. He's, already, he's loved you for 14 billion years already. 
And if you, if you choose to follow Jesus, if you trust Jesus with your, with your life, then forgiveness and adoption is yours. What he wants you to do is place your faith in Jesus. Authentically say, just like those people 2,000 years ago in Ephesus said, I place my faith in Jesus now. It's what he would want you to do. It's what he would want you to do. So we're going to roll into the most important four minutes of the service now. After hearing this, we're going to worship God. Don't, don't leave. This is the most important four minutes. This is, this is our chance. <laughs> it's some fresh, stunning news. This is our chance to say to him, thank you. I love you. I worship you. This is our chance. So I'll pray, and Sarah, the worship team, will come up, and this is your chance to voice your heart to God. Remember how he sings over you. It's not this quiet, polite singing. Remember how he sings over you. And think what he deserves from us. Father in heaven, um, such stunning truth there, Father, such good news. I know I cannot fully get my mind around it. No one can this side of heaven. But I'm getting more of my mind around it. I'm being more influenced by it. it. May it be true of us here in this room, wherever we are about these truths here, about from before you made creation, you loved each one of us, and you have sustained love all these years. Before you made creation, then you planned for all that would trust Jesus, you planned to forgive completely, make holy and without fault. And for 14 billion years, you planned to adopt. And for everyone that says yes to Christ, you, you have, you do. So, Father, now hear our hearts, hear our emotion around that, hear Hear our response to you, to you, the one who sings over us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.